Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, we'll look at the first 15 verses. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version, uh, a literal translation from the Greek documents. This is God's word. Soon afterward, he, Jesus, went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Johanna, the wife of Huzza, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. And when a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. For they believe for a while and in the time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that, in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast and honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. Thus far we read in God's holy word, may he bless it to all who hear, believe, And obey. Amen. Amen. Well, it is definitely springtime, as my allergies could attest to you. Uh, I don't know if you bear with me in that. But one of the beautiful things about springtime leads us right into this text. It's things growing. Things are growing, and, and what's been planted emerges, or the trees start budding. I think as a kid, one of the most exciting things, and even as a parent watching this with your children, is taking a a little bean seed and planting it maybe in a little plastic cup and if it's clear plastic cup and depending how it's planted you can see it germinate and little sprouts and watch it grow and the leaves come up from this little rock-like seed 
comes this life. You know, and the kids have to remember to keep it moist, put a little soil over the top and all of that, and this seed germinates, the, the wonder of life. I, you know, I, I can imagine uh, little David Bissett coming home with my bean plant saying, look what I made. But we don't really make the plants, do we? The life is in the seed. And in the right circumstances, that seed sprouts and grows. Here in today's passage, Jesus tells us not just a parable, but the mother of all parables, I'll explain that, about how his word works and how some respond to his word. And it's pretty memorable when we get to those soils and we see some don't respond positively, and it's very few that do. And we even see here at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus describes some special disciples who've responded. The passage today raises the question, have you responded to the word of God? And if you have, in what way? Just superficial, emotional response? Or is there a root? And is there real fruit? And is there the life of a disciple seen in you? So really, these 15 verses talk about responding to God's word. And they clarify for us, uh, really, our own standing before the Lord. And they give us hope of how God's word can bring life. We can't make anyone else a Christian, but we can sow that seed and watch. And we can water and pray and watch. Let's begin with this introductory paragraph. And I I think uh, Luke is such a masterful, inspired gospel writer. I I used to think I loved John the first gospel I read. I loved that the most. And I've studied Matthew the most. I've used Mark perhaps the most in Bible studies. And I'm just falling in love afresh with Luke. God has inspired this doctor to arrange his material and to present it to us in such beautiful fashion. And before he gets to this most important parable, he has this little prefatory comment. These uh, these words at the beginning of the chapter summarize this period, this season of teaching. No longer in Jerusalem itself or in the big cities of Galilee because things were getting a little hot for Jesus. Jesus is going through the cities and the villages. He's going near and far. And and the language here means this was his daily habit. He was on a preaching tour, spreading the good news. And it says who was with him. The ones that were with him are those who had responded to the word. Those whom he had called as apostles, they're listed here. It says at the very end of verse 1, and the 12 were with him. And it might be the case that we should spell the and 12 with capital T's because it's a proper noun. It's referring to the 12 apostles. And among the 12 was still Judas. We'll get to his story before the end. The 12 were with him. Of all his disciples, a few dozen perhaps, we don't know the number, there were these men who were being trained for particular roles, the 12 apostles. 
But Luke adds this. As he's thinking of this season of teaching and progress and, and, and building deeper discipleships, this wonderful season, he adds in verse 2, he says, And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. So out of all the followers, there were women, of course, but he talks about three standout women disciples. And he names them Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chaza, Herod's uh, household manager or steward, and then Susanna, and many others. How many is many? You know, for me, I, I think many is, is at least two handfuls, and whatever a handful is. It's, it's a lot, something noticeable. My guess is that there were probably even more than 12 in this group. You know, he, he, Luke is counting and reciting what he's learned of this season, and he sees the, the lead guys, but he sees a lot of other disciples, and foremost among those disciples are these women that he takes time to name. Mary Magdalene, we've heard something about, and we will throughout the gospel. We do not know from any gospel passage her background. So we don't know if she was the woman in chapter 7 who had been forgiven much and was a woman of the streets or anything like that. We don't know that that's Mary Magdalene. So why don't we just drop that? It's possible, but do you want people speculating on your life before Christ? Um, We can trace to the first commentator who suggested that, and it does not go back to the scriptures. But we do see that Mary of Magdala, I think it's a geographic reference, it's obscure, we don't know exactly her name. She was delivered from seven demons. Whatever her past was, this is the big deal. And we know what a demon can do to a person. If you've read the Bible, you see that. Seven demons? Is there anyone? Maybe the gathering demoniac, legion of demons. But this is certainly one of the most severe cases ever of the devil messing with a human being. And God rescued her through Jesus. He who has been forgiven much, loves much. Mary was a faithful disciple through the end. Uh, Joanna, we only know her from a couple references here and then at the end of the gospel. But what do we see? She was apparently the wife of a of somebody working in Herod, the king's palace. And so she was probably a woman of means and had access to money. How would she have heard about Jesus? A lot of different ideas, perhaps through John the Baptist and his interaction with Herod before he was beheaded. We don't know. But she, even from that place, that environment, in those circles, was a disciple who followed Jesus and was present on this preaching tour, Joanna. Susanna, she's only mentioned here. We don't know anything else about her. But Luke puts her name forward as an outstanding disciple, and many others. They had all experienced the grace of God in Jesus Christ. They'd all responded to the world and were disciples following Jesus. Pastor Phil Riken says that they're numbered among the disciples, they're students. He says, Jesus also invited them, these women, to learn from his teaching ministry. This was remarkable, he says, because in those days rabbis generally did not teach women 
But Jesus wanted to do more for these women than just forgive their sins. He wanted to disciple their minds. And to that end, he instructed them in the word. The teachings of Jesus for all his disciples. I'm calling them outstanding disciples because they're not only traveling with Jesus, uh, but they're with Jesus to the end, as far as what we know from Mary and Joanna, at least. At the end of Luke, you're welcome to take a peek. At the end of the Gospel, Luke chapter 23 and then chapter 24, they're mentioned. Uh, It was a woman who anointed Jesus, uh, preparing him for his burial. It was the women who attended him at the cross and the women who prepared his body at the grave. And it was the women who were first at the garden on the morning of the resurrection. Luke 23 says this, The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment. These are the women disciples. And then Luke 24, 10. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, we know her, and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told These things about seeing the risen Christ to the other apostles. Those are outstanding disciples. It's amazing. And they're in scripture for a purpose. And not only are they amazing faithful disciples, but here is what Luke also mentions at the very end of verse 3. They provided for him or for them, for Jesus or for all the disciples, out of their means. They were the financial backers of Jesus and the the band of disciples as they traveled. I know when we go on a family vacation, I like to pack the toys, the fishing stuff and and the pocket knife, and the lantern, and I might pack extra batteries, but we would probably have no food, and no meal plan, and all of that if it weren't for my partner on camping ministries. There is a a way to plan and prepare that requires uh, a keen mind and a servant's heart. It's amazing here how Jesus says that these women didn't just serve, they provided for They took the lead in in financial backing. Uh, Dr. Douglas Milne says, These women explain how Jesus managed to live as a traveling teacher without regular income. They were the ones who provided. We know Jesus could make bread and multiply and feed thousands, but that's not how he served his disciples. He allowed these outstanding women disciples to provide. As they traveled. So these are examples really for every believer. When the word comes and your life is changed, you grow and you bear fruit. These women had responded to the word. And with that set forth, Luke now tells us this most important parable of Jesus. We don't know what day it was, but we know it was when a great crowd had gathered. People from town after town had come. Uh, Jesus told them this parable. And it's a parable about the word preached. So it's a parable about parables. It's a parable about preaching. And it serves a couple of purposes. 
Phil Riken calls it the mother of all parables because Jesus used it to explain why he spoke in parables and what they were supposed to accomplish in the lives of those who heard them. It's really important. It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of the synoptic gospels. We remember John is a, is a different style and crafting of a, of a gospel, but for all three of the synoptics to have it is very significant. But let's ask a couple questions. What is a parable? What is a parable? You may remember the, the pithy, quick answer, and it still serves us well, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Boys and girls, you can remember that. What is a parable? An earthly story with a heavenly meaning. What, what do we mean by earthly? Uh, a, a man was digging in his field, or a man had two sons, or the farmer went out to sow. Uh, he, he tells things that you would see in everyday life on the horizontal. And you know what? I think Jesus chose the time and place to tell this parable where the crowds could perhaps look across uh, and see a farmer in his field sowing the seed. You know, they didn't have projection screens back then, but Jesus is pretty smart as a teacher, had a sense of timing and circumstance. Maybe there were farmers on both sides of the crowd sowing their seeds. A visual display of the very thing Jesus is going to tell. A parable is a story that is fiction. Jesus makes it up, but it is true in what it tells us. An earthly story with a heavenly meaning, meaning something spiritual to be learned. Jesus doesn't tell this parable so that you're a better gardener. So a parable... Literally, the word parable, you probably see its similarity to paragraph, where writings are laid alongside. A paragraph is supposed to have one topic, and if you get to a new topic and lay sentences together, that's a new paragraph. Well, a parable is, is something laid alongside something else for comparison, two things laid side by side. So that's the literal meaning of the word. And it's pretty unique to Jesus, although there are secular parables, and history has those who would tell them. Uh, and if you've ever tried to write your own parable, you'll see how very hard it is. Jesus is the master teacher. A parable typically has one main point. And we have to avoid the danger, which some in the early church, uh, some of those church fathers with Latin names, they often got carried away in making allegories. You know, the parable of the Good Samaritan, the oil represented the Holy Spirit. And so when they put oil on the wounded man, oh, they, they get carried away. Jesus doesn't intend that. Allegorizing every little point. The main point is the main point. Although, in this parable, we'll see that Jesus has several supporting explanations to the main point. What is the main point of this one? We'll see is, is how do people respond to the word? And you have two responses. Three that are bad, so there's a bad response and the good response. That's the main thing he's telling. But why does he speak in parables? Why does he speak in parables? He had said... When he taught the parable, beginning in uh, verse 4 and following, he just starts teaching it. A sower went out to sow, and he, and he tells this. He doesn't say, let's figure this out together. He just tells it, and he ends his parable with this calling out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
when I teach, I like to give a title and usually a handout and a, maybe a recap if you don't remember the previous lesson. I try to tell you where we're going. Jesus just told the parable. Set it out there and said, think about it, hear it, give your attention to this. So why does he speak in a parable? His disciples will eventually ask him. And uh, that is of interest here. This phrase, it doesn't come through clearly in verse 9 in the English as, as more vividly in the Greek. Uh, when the disciples asked him what this parable meant, it's actually, what is this? You know, it's a deeper, broader question. He says, oh, what do you mean by that? That's a simple question. They're going, what are you doing here? And what are these words? And how should we respond? It's, it's a fuller, deeper question of, uh, it's an existential question. What is this parable? So Jesus gives them his purpose before he gives the explanation. So let's look at verse 10. And we'll see that his purposes are twofold. On the sermon outline sheet, I only have one point here, but there's two purposes he will tell them about. In verse 10, he tells them first, to you, speaking to his disciples, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. So the purposes reveal secrets about the kingdom of God. Like what? Where the uh, swords are stored or where the kitchen is? No, no, no. The secrets of the kingdom are spiritual realities. How am I saved? How am I right with the king? What is my role in the kingdom? What do you expect of me? All the things we need to know about spiritual life, salvation in life. Those things are spoken of in the parables. So there's a revealing purpose here. And it's a real gift of God. Doesn't he say that? To you it has been given to know. He doesn't say, oh, you're my disciples. I picked you. You're smart enough. You'll figure this out. No. It's a gift of God. When you see something in the Bible and apprehend it for yourself and you feel the light bulb going out, it's God who gives the understanding. Be humble, my friends. Be humble. But he goes on. But, that's the negating conjunction, but for others, they are in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. I think the ESV is helpful here. There's a half a quote around that phrase, seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. And if you have cross-references and you look at what verse 10 is linked to by that cross-reference, it should tell you Isaiah chapter 6. Jesus is telling them there's a second purpose to the parables, and it is to conceal the truth. Okay, you're preaching, you're spreading the good news, but you're also hiding it? Do you, have you ever grasped this? Perhaps this is news to you, that when Jesus came, it wasn't just uh, drinks on the house for the whole world. No, Jesus came with the purpose of gathering his people to himself, but also coming to foreshadow judgment on those hard of heart. And we have to go back to see what it says in Isaiah. So if you have Isaiah, you can go back to Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6 is most famous for the prophet's call and this vision into the presence of God in the year that King Uzziah died. I 
saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. He has this vision of a glorious God. The king had died, and the people were in disarray. And there was a pending judgment upon the people, and Isaiah would be calling God's people to repent. And you know what? They would be going off into captivity. But Isaiah here, he has this wonderful vision. He has a sense that his sins are forgiven when the thing happens with the burning coal in his mouth. But then there's these words of commissioning after Isaiah, is, is, his sin is atoned for. Verse 8, Isaiah says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. And he, the Lord, said, go, say to this people, here's the allusion, the quote, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy their blind, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. There is a measure of judgment that comes through prophet Isaiah to the people of God and they will go into captivity because of their sin and disobedience and hardness of heart. So back in Luke chapter 8, why does Jesus mention these words? What's going on today? Jesus has a great big audience and in his audience are disciples and in his audience are future converts. But in his audience are also many Jews with hard hearts. And the word comes in part as judgment. One preacher says, as part of his judgment against their sin, God would harden them in their unbelief. Many of you know the passage from Isaiah 55 which talks about how God's word will accomplish what he sends it forth to do. It doesn't say God's word will always convert the one who hears it. I've been preaching a long time, a lot of sermons. And God's word brings many people spiritual life and growth, but some people it doesn't seem to affect. But that's in God's hands. God's word will accomplish what he wants it to do. And sometimes there is a hardening. So when that hard-hearted, unbelieving person stands before God, God can say, you are without excuse. You heard. So Jesus uses parables as part of his teaching, not all his teaching. Sometimes he's very specific and forthright, many times. But the parables are part of his way of revealing and concealing at the same time. A parable reveals and conceals. So let's look at uh, the explanation of the parable that Jesus gives us. Because after saying what he's up to with these uh, word stories, these parables, he explains it. They've asked what's going on. And so he's very clear. And here's the reading of it, uh, beginning in verse 11. Now the parable is this. And when we read it, we'll hear that he describes the sower, he describes the seed and the soils. And then the, the big takeaway at the end. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path, that's the first one, 
are those who have heard, then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. There's the group that Isaiah was talking about. Verse 13, and the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root, for they believe for a while, and in the time of testing will fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. And as for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Jesus talks about four soils. There are two responses, bad and good. But the bad has three examples. I don't know that we should say that 25% of the people who hear God's word are converted. I, I don't think we should take that away. That's speculation. But I can say it seems that most people don't respond favorably. And few there are that find eternal life. I don't know, but that seems to be what it says. Let's look at the four soils briefly this morning. I'm sure you've heard uh, people talk about them and, and understanding and cataloging the four soils isn't the main point, but it helps illustrate the main point. The first uh, seed fell along the path. Now, we have to know something about farming in the ancient world. Yesterday, I met a, a guy who had been a dairyman, and I said, oh, I grew up in Wisconsin. I know something about cows. So we had a, a little bond going on there. I, I only milked a cow once, but we were bonding. But in the ancient world, farming was conducted a little differently. You had your field. And the field was sometimes marked by a path around the sides, because that's how you would get to farming on foot, your segment of field, and possibly even paths across the middle. So when the sower went out to sow his seed, some of it would land on the path. Now, why would a farmer throw his seed in the street? That's not what's happening here. In the ancient world, in this place, apparently, they would sow and then plow. And the seed, you'd take a handful of seeds from your basket or from the fold of your robe, and you'd throw them where you want them to go. You want to get it right up into the corner of the field, but that's near the path, so some of the seed is going to roll over onto the path, the footpath. It's going to happen, and they probably saw it happen a, a hundred times. Jesus says this represents the hard and indifferent hearer. Phil Riken uses those two terms, hard and indifferent. I think that's spot on. The seed never penetrates. It doesn't enter the heart. It's just sitting there on the surface. The soil is compacted. And not only that, it's sitting there not getting in. What happens according to verse 12? The ones along the path of those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts. So it could sit there maybe and if rain came maybe and saw No, there's not even that opportunity. The devil is out there in the mix. And you know, brothers and sisters, we need to have a biblical worldview about the devil. He's not a cartoon character. He's not just a foil to scare children and others into... Uh, whatever it, it, the devil is real and he opposes the things of God he doesn't want anyone to hear and believe God's word and understand it 
So right when you're about to have your devotions, your phone may go off. Right when you're about to pray because someone's on your heart, um, the doorbell may ring. I'm not saying the devil orchestrates all these things, but he will do what he can to keep you from a relationship with God, to keep you from hearing God's word or speaking to the Lord in prayer. The devil is active. And my friends, one of the takeaways today is when someone is preaching and someone is sharing the gospel and you're aware of it, you may not be the preacher. Pray that the devil is is kept out. I think it's a very legitimate prayer. I was praying that this morning very fervently because I was hoping to unmask him with these words and I don't think he wants you to believe the words about the devil. So he will distract you and take them out of your ears. Why is it that as soon as the sermon's over, all of a sudden some people are caught up talking about sports or recipes or weather? Well, part of that could be the little distractions. Let's change the subject. Some of those distractions don't come from a good place. That's that's just the way I think because the supernatural world is real and the devil's opposing these things. He probably doesn't have to do it a lot here. I think we need to worry about a different type of seed soil that's coming up. I think that's the more American situation. But this happens, and Jesus taught it. The second seed example is that which falls on the rocks. This is the shallow and superficial hearer. Shallow and superficial hearer. Uh, Just as in, in some fields... Uh, you know, you might see this in New England where all those rocks, the frost keeps driving the rocks to the surface. You may think there's a lot of soil there, but there's not. You may want to plant something here in this uh, median strip here in the church parking lot, but you know what's under that inch of soil? A lot of uh, construction debris. I've taken a shovel. I know what's out there. It's not very deep. It'd be tough to plant a tree in that median because that's where a lot of construction debris is. And so the soil's only this deep. And that's what Jesus says. Some seed falls on a heart that is superficially interested. It's shallow. But then when things get tough, they fail. Their feelings are in a good place at first. Uh, and And... and So this seed that falls on the rocks, what does he say in verse 13? And the ones of the rock are those who, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy. God bless you, preacher. Thanks for that word. They receive it with joy, but, says Jesus, these have no root. As a kid, I often wondered if you could plant cut flowers doesn't really work there's no root they won't do well i mean you can take clippings from some plants and try to start them and i'm not talking about that if there's no root there's no life that's what jesus says one commentator said the only faith that endures is one that is based upon who jesus is and what he has done and no none and not one that is based on how we happen to feel 
The person who responded initially with joy was borne forward by their feelings. Perhaps they, they went to a Billy Graham crusade and, and they felt the moment. A little bit of conviction, but a little bit of joy, and they go forward and there's some joy there. But it's short-lived when the crusade is over. I know people that have been converted at crusades. But this shallow and superficial hearer is a concern. There's no root. When trouble comes, as trouble will come in this broken world, the rootless will fall away. The real Christian who has some root will be spurred to grow, for roots to go deeper. But those on the rocks, on the superficial soil, don't do well. It's not the seed that's the problem, it's the heart, it's the soil. The third example here is among the thorns. Why would a farmer throw seed into the thorn bush? Well, he's not doing that on purpose. He's trying to get the seed out as many good areas as possible. And adjacent, there are the weeds, or the weeds kind of creep in. And there's that battle. The thorns are the hearer who is preoccupied and distracted. Preoccupied and distracted. Because uh, there are some weeds mentioned among the thorns. These three types of challenges. Uh, Did you see how Jesus listed them? Verse 14. As for what fell among the thorns, these are those who hear, but as they go on their way are choked by cares, riches, and pleasures. Those are the three areas of attack cares that's like troubles and that's not pleasant for anyone oh boy i've got to take care of this this is trouble i take care and i have trouble so that is a challenge to them but notice that the other two challenges that are listed are good things did you see that riches and pleasures oh i just came into some money I, I got a check. My great, 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 great aunt died, and here I've got $5,000. What am I going to do? Be careful. It could be something that hinders your spiritual well being, riches, or pleasures. My friends, I think our American neighbors are living among the thorns. As we try to sow the seed, they are preoccupied and they are distracted and the world is really good at distracting and demanding attention. And there are so many things in this land of plenty that will choke out any impulse for spiritual good. This corner of the garden of the world where we work is filled with a lot of thorns and weeds. And that's our challenge. But we know that there is a fourth case where the preached word, whether from Jesus or from a preacher on his behalf, goes out and the seed falls in good soil. This is the receptive, believing hearer. This is the believing and fruitful hearer. Of the four soils, this is the only good soil because it yields a harvest, as Jesus says 
in verse 15, as for that in the good soil, they are those who hearing the word, word hold it fast. They hold to it. And then there's roots that go on, as implied earlier. And it, they hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Now, Jesus is not giving us a full systematic theology of regeneration here. Uh, we believe that uh, faith precedes regeneration, the gift of faith. It's not of ourselves, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. We, we know that God does his work. He opens the eyes so that we can see and believe. He gives us the new heart that we can call on the name of the Lord, that we can repent and believe. He does that work. But as our experiential encounter with the word is, when it comes, if we are holding it fast, that's because God has given us that grace. To hold it fast. He's given us that new heart. He's given us eyes to see and understand. And Jesus describes the heart here, doesn't he? As one commentator put it, it is a heart that holds on to God's word, reading it regularly, believing what it says about sin and salvation, and living in obedience to its commands. This heart is good honest, and patient. That's what Jesus says. There are ways to respond to the word. And when Jesus himself preached, not every hearer believed. So this was his experience as well. This is the way it is in the world. We need to pray for the unsaved to have receptive hearts. We pray to a sovereign God who can change the heart He can open the eyes of the blind. My friends, that's why those illustrations and languages are used to describe God's saving power. He makes the lame to walk. Why that? Because spiritually, he takes those who can't come to Christ. They're lame and makes them able to come. He replaces the heart of stone with the heart of flesh that can love Jesus and desire his forgiveness. He opens the eyes of the blind, not because it's some great miracle to mark the messianic age only, because it spiritually shows what he does for sinners. Those who don't get it all of a sudden, their eyes are opened by the power of God. And they go, wow, Jesus will forgive me? Wow, Jesus has Freed me from seven demons? Regardless of my past, Jesus can give me a future and a hope? Wow. And when that eye-opening light bulb moment comes, it's the work of God. So as the gospel comes, receive it. Receive it with joy. Emotions are important. If good news comes, we can receive it with joy. But that's not where it stops. You nurture it, you believe it, and you walk in the light of the gospel. The word of God, when it comes to a good soil heart, always, always bears fruit. Well, let me give you three exhortations as we wrap up here. Um, And three words to kind of hang each one on. The first word is listen. The second word is sow. 
And the last word rhymes. It's no. K-N-O-W. Listen. The first exhortation here really seems to be listen steadfastly. Don't let the devil interrupt what you're hearing from God. And be aware that as you're trying to share with someone and explain your faith, that the devil's there, not necessarily sitting on his shoulder, whispering in his ear, but there is a spiritual tug of war going on, so pray. Sharing the word and witnessing isn't just about getting information into someone's ears. There's a spiritual conflict. So that's what you need to do. uh, And for yourself to listen steadfastly. Let me ask, how have you heard the word of God? Which hearer are you? Well, if we were doing the hand-raising thing and started with the good soil, I hope all the hands would go up. But that means you're holding fast with an honest and a good heart and you're bearing fruit. Is there spiritual fruit in your life that give you assurance it just so happens that the, uh, the Sunday school class will talk a little bit about assurance, how we can know we're a Christian. So you can come to the Sunday school class on First John. But are you hearing? Are you concerned for others who are trying to hear? Listen steadfastly. The second closing word is so, S-O-W, that means spread the gospel. And spread the gospel generously. You see how the chapter began in in verse 1. Jesus is going everywhere. He's not just going to Jerusalem. He's not just going to Capernaum and Nazareth. He's going everywhere. And as Jesus goes here and there, he's an example of just sowing the word generously and preaching it generously. Jesus is the prince of itinerant preachers, said one, scattering far and wide the seed of the kingdom of God. So should his disciples be. To sow generously and not worry, oh, if I throw it over here, it might fall among the thorns. Well, America is filled with thorns. You're not going to avoid them. Get as much seed out as possible. You don't know what's below the surface. You don't know if it's shallow or not. Or if the devil's going to pluck it away or not. So generously. I think that's a a challenge a lot of young Christians uh, don't have because they're so happy, they sow generously. And then all of a sudden we get a little bit too intellectual. We think, oh, this person might not be ripe for the gospel. Maybe I shouldn't say anything. And we begin to evaluate and think we can discern all the soils. Just keep sowing. We need to do more sowing. And what do I mean by that? What could we do? Invite people to church. Tell them why they should come to church. Say, you know, at church we get to worship God, and at church we get to hear from God's word and be among God's people, and there's something neat happening. God's at work. Invite people to church. Share with them. Open. Share something you're reading in the scriptures. Sow the word without worrying about the soil. The final exhortation, it comes back to that opening part about the women disciples. I want to say that we should all know and serve. We should all be disciples that are paying attention to the teaching. Uh, Jesus was bringing these folks along, the 12 and the women, the group of disciples, the mixed group, and he was teaching them. And the disciples wanted to know the meaning of the 
parable. It doesn't just say the apostles. It said in verse 8, when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, they were all learning. We need to be disciples that seek to understand and then also who serve. That's why these women disciples were so commendable. They had heard and they had personally profited from the power of the gospel, but they were serving. Are we serving? Are we studying and serving? Are we seeking to understand? Do we ask Jesus questions? Do we pursue the meaning of his word? There's much here for us to do if we are to respond properly to the word. God has spoken. He is not silent. He sent forth his son. He's given us good news. Are we hearing? Are we believing? Are we growing? Are we serving? Are we sowing? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the gospel of Luke. We thank you for the believers there that uh, Jesus points us to as uh, wonderful examples of discipleship. And we thank you for the explanation of how the word is received in the world. Lord, we've seen it. We've seen people that are distracted and indifferent. uh, And they've heard and heard, but there is no sign of life. We pray that you would cultivate the soil of their heart. That you would break up the fallow ground in their soul. That the word of God might be received with joy. And that it might go to the root Father, we pray, may we also labor and sow the word and share and tell. Uh, May we be disciples that uh, uh, have your uh, approval, Father. We ask your blessing in all these ways. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.